Welcome back to the Mega Hour, a podcast box set series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. I'm Andrew Dykes, content editor at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And in this series, we're examining how energy storage technologies are reshaping, reinforcing, and recharging energy markets. Over the course of nine episodes so far, we've covered the ins and outs of batteries and other storage technologies, the ups and downs of the power market, and the meanders of the policy landscape. We've seen how assets are built and funded, how other businesses like aggregators and optimizers help them provide services to the grid and generate revenue, and how the grid itself is enabling and deploying storage as we look to build a resilient energy system fit for net zero. More than that, we've also looked at how storage is shaping consumer choices too, supporting greater uptake of other technologies like domestic solar and flexible demand, and even shaking up the transport market as EV adoption continues to grow. In our 10th and final episode, we're looking to sum up that journey so far, recapping some of the most important learnings from the series and setting out where energy storage is headed now. Joining us to help scan the past, present and future of the sector and beyond is John Toomey, Director of Customer Connections at National Grid. John has worked at National Grid for nearly 20 years in various roles covering market development, strategy and connections, and so is ideally placed to help us understand the physical and policy infrastructure that underpins this sector. We're also joined by Joe Warren, the founder and managing director of PowerVault. PowerVault is a British company headquartered in London, which designs and manufactures smart energy storage systems for the home, aimed at storing solar energy and cheap electricity from the grid to reduce bills and increase energy efficiency. Before PowerVault, Joe also spent 15 years working in the smart grid sector and has previously worked at Open Energy and internet service provider Pipex. And last, but by no means least, I'm thoroughly delighted once again to welcome back my co-host, David Bevan, corporate finance partner at BDO. Thanks to all of you for joining us for our big finale. David, I'll come to you first. We started this journey in mid-2022, and it's now nearly the end of 2023, if, if you can believe it. That's 18 months, but even in that time, it feels like so much has changed, uh, right down to some of the market fundamentals from power prices to supply chain issues, inflation, and the investment landscape. I wanted first to ask your thoughts on that period. You know, How, how different is this sector and indeed the winder clean energy space now to where we started? You know, it's been it's amazing just, just to think back. Um, it's been been that long and so much has changed. I think, um, and we actually, interestingly, we, we thought would be, be fun to ask um, one of our previous guests this question and uh, and we reached out to um, Flexitricity and Andrew um, Andrew Langlands uh, who, who joined us on episode four and he pointed out a huge he came up with a list of about a dozen technical changes that had either happened or were about to happen in the, in the coming year he talked about frequency response market saturation he talked about balancing mechanism versus NIV strategies. He talked about enduring auction capability, balancing reserve, quick, slow reserve, all sorts of very technical things. And I'd love to be able to talk in detail about those, but they're, they're way beyond me in many, many respects. So for me, I guess the key thing is we've seen more investment and more investment in bigger and bigger projects. So we were lucky enough to work on what we think um, was when it's built um, will be the, the the world's largest utility scale battery at 1.4 gigawatts. And those are kind of deals that are happening now. They're getting much, much bigger. The UK is still where most of the activity is is um, is happening in, in my world. Um, but I'm also aware that you know investors are coming into the UK more to invest in batteries. And some of the UK investors are going overseas to, to test out other markets, which are quite different in some respects, sort of US and so on, very different characteristics. Um, so it's all about growth. It's been absolutely phenomenal. And I guess when you look back a little bit further than when we started this journey, um, yeah, let's, let's go back sort of four or five years. When we, f- we first started to come into contact with, with businesses that were owning and operating assets, 
you know, they, they were just a handful, frankly. Now, every other transaction I, I, I look at has a, you know, a kind of co-located battery storage application you know, associated with it. So it's, it's been a huge fundamental transformation. There are some challenges that we've seen. Some of the listed investors um, are, have been you know, challenged by market conditions. They're, they're a bit sort of frozen at the minute, finding it difficult to raise money for, for various reasons. Grid connections remain a sort of perennial challenge. But I think you've you got to look past that and look beyond that and just, just look at the phenomenal growth. And it's really exciting. So huge amounts of change, both technical and commercial, I think. Yeah, I mean, I remember our early guests and talking about kind of projects that were the exciting scale were a couple of hundred megawatts. And that was kind of seen as, you know, we're really delivering at the front end. And you're obviously at the gigawatt scale now by just such a short time later. It's, it's a really exciting space to be in. Um, John, I'm going to bring you in first. You're obviously here representing National Grid, but it's probably worth uh, clarifying exactly what bit of National Grid and what it is that you do in your role before we dive into kind of where we are now in the storage sector. Yeah, thanks for that. So I work within National Grid Electricity Transmission. So this is the part of National Grid that own and maintain the high voltage network across England and Wales. So to kind of bring that to life for people, that's at voltages of 400 and 275 kV. It's a separate part of National Grid to National Grid ESO, which is a legally separate part of the National Grid group, which is the operator for the system. So National Grid ESO will do the balance of the system in real time and um, to make sure the generation and demand profiles are, are fit for purpose. So the part of National Grid I work in effectively works with customers to physically connect them to the network across England and Wales. And obviously National Grid is a, a big organization a national energy company with operations primarily in the UK and the US. Um, and we have a huge system here in the UK, some four and a half thousand miles of overhead lines, uh, 330 substations in and around um, the country, and obviously a huge amount of work and investment required as we go through the net zero transition. So as David alluded to, you know, there's, there's quite a lot is still developing in the sector and, and quite a lot has certainly changed since we started this in 2022. But we wanted to kind of start with a, a bit of a snapshot of, of where we are now in the UK. We, you know, we've seen a huge growth in, in batteries and it feels like we're maybe sealing possibly fewer, smaller projects and maybe just more scale. So, I mean, where, where do you see battery storage now in, in kind of National Grid's perspective and, and where are we headed in the UK? So battery storage has obviously been a really important component part of new technologies looking to connect to the system. Before I maybe just speak about sort of battery storage specifically, it's probably worth just a bit of a step back in terms of some of the numbers and what we're currently seeing sort of contracted to connect to the system. So primarily within England and Wales, we've now got over 300 gigawatts of new forms of technology looking to connect to the system. Ultimately, we need around 55 gigawatts of uh, new generation by 2035 to be uh, compliant with the energy scenarios um, to deliver on net zero. Like if we drill down into that, batteries are a big part of that. So we have around 44 gigawatts, which are currently contracted at this minute in time. But we, what we have seen in terms of business models is a huge amount of uh, hybrid projects, specifically batteries and solar looking to connect. So there's around 140 gigawatts of those type of projects. And there obviously is a really important uh, financial model of why customers have come forward with those types of hybrid arrangements going forward. So um, the market, particularly in the connection side of things, is, is particularly hot right now. There's a huge demand for new connections to come forward uh, to connect to our network and Specifically for batteries, yeah, there's a huge amount on our books. 
I think historically and sort of today we've seen smaller scale batteries coming along, but kind of as already some of the characteristics of larger scale batteries looking to contract and also um, longer duration type batteries as well coming to sort of fruition as well. And in terms of that process, I appreciate this kind of economics driving that from the development side. In terms of connections for you, is, is it easier to, to manage a smaller pool of, say, bigger projects? Or, or do they cause the kind of same issues no matter where they're trying to plug in? I guess they cause different types of issues. I think what's always important for us at National Grid is that our processes can work for both. So what we have seen is a more diverse characteristic of different types of projects looking to connect to the system as is today more smaller scale uh, projects the challenges within those types of projects is that they can come to market really really quickly they can potentially get through the planning and then their financial investment processes really really quick so what we have to do is we have to be able to adapt our processes so that we can ultimately deliver the connections in tune with their aspirations as well. For some of the big projects that we're coming forward, we know that um, they might be going through a more onerous or rigorous process from a planning and finance perspective. So it's kind of important that we're providing the level of assurance on what their grid connection needs to look like. So we're kind of working with them over a longer period of time to get them connected to the network. But we're seeing both in our processes and our um, ways of working with these customers kind of flexes depending on the nature of both of these projects. I'm, I'm going to dive down to uh, to the sort of consumer front facing level now with, with Joe. I mean, how are you seeing the UK market now in terms of your your side of the storage sector, and and what does it look like going forward? Well, we're absolutely at the other end of the scale from the the gigawatt scale of batteries. You know, we're really um, installing batteries in homes and businesses um, behind the meter, usually with solar panels occasionally wind turbines being installed alongside and what we've seen over the last few years uh, really is the solar the market for solar panels um you know growing back to the levels that you might have seen during the feed-in tariff uh, but the key difference is most of these are now being supplied by uh, people who are also putting in batteries alongside them and uh, what we're doing at powerful which is um, slightly different is giving those batteries the opportunity to also uh, be controlled in a, in a slightly cleverer way using smart technology so that the battery can work out the best time to charge up from the lowest cost energy, but also maybe even export energy back to the grid if there's a need for that. And that's been enabled by the rollout of smart meters, which is another sort of key difference over the last five years uh, at the advent of smart tariffs. And then also more recently, the ability for even behind the meter batteries to participate with some of the more interesting ancillary services so for example the demand flexibility service i think there's an event happening today and uh um, some of our customers have opted in to take advantage of that and so their battery will be discharging during that event and helping to support the grid so uh absolutely seeing a growth in the domestic um, and small business sector as people are installing those renewables and then also installing uh, smart batteries alongside them. And I think one thing that's happened over that time, certainly slightly before we, we started uh, recording, but certainly obviously energy prices have been at the forefront of everyone's mind over this period, especially with the, the war in Ukraine and the sort of corresponding effect on uh, power prices, especially and, and, and heating and everything else. You know, do you see that driving increased interest or was this kind of already that, you know, the train had left the station and, and this has kind of just kicked that off? I think it's certainly true that the energy crisis sparked interest in energy storage and, 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 and in renewable energy um, in general. And I think it's fair to say with today's prices, if you've got a, a small amount of capital and a suitable roof, it's a no-brainer for, for any one of us to put solar panels on. We'll save money. Uh, obviously, that's going to ultimately produce um, lots of energy, but 
perhaps energy that's not produced at the right time. So we're going to need storage to to absorb the spare energy that we're not using, and then and then give that energy back when we need it in the evening or uh, or what have you. So uh, definitely, there has been a step change increase in interest in both renewables and energy storage um, behind the meter over the last couple of years. And obviously, that sort of co-location at, at the small scale. David, you, you mentioned right at the top, you know, co-location at, at the big scale of these generation projects. I think uh, in the last episode, we, we even hear about, you know, layering battery storage onto your storage assets to be able to have them <laughs> compete more effectively. I mean, are you seeing that kind of change in the market as well? Are, are there any projects that are being brought to, to market without that, that at least thinking of some kind of energy storage component? Yeah, look, there are some, um, but I, I would say that over the last 18 months or so, it's become really prevalent and I'm, I'm sometimes seeing portfolios that are literally every every element of the portfolio has got um, a generation asset and a, um, a storage asset application i guess that yeah i suppose there's there's some efficiency in going through those kind of development processes together um it's prob- probably uh, cheaper in the long run to do it to do it that way and it kind of makes sense even if it's speculative in some cases um, but it's yeah, it's very common now. Um, I see it a lot. And, and one thing we heard in in the beginning, John, was this uh, sort of, and I think this is maybe earlier, and again five years ago. But there was this kind of fight for some of the early stage storage developers to be treated kind of as a flexible asset. As, uh, the role of batteries was not simply one for sucking in energy and and dispatching it. You know, they can provide all these other services. I was wondering how the the sort of frameworks around the grid and and your role has has changed to reflect that. And you know, they, they seem to be increasingly providing a, a host of other buffers that are, are valuable to you as, as the, the transmission operator, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's fair to say they're, they're unique in terms of what they can provide and they're probably different to anything that we've seen before. So I think from an industry point of view, we've all been learning as these new forms of technology have been coming onto the system, particularly batteries. Historically, they have been treated and modelled in a way that they've been uh, like conventional generation. So from that point of view, that's how you kind of model them and you assess their impact of them connecting to the system. What we've ultimately seen though is that the way they behave in the market they can be absolutely super valuable in terms of enabling you to be able to manage constraints more efficiently so you know if if you've got a situation where you've got high wind output these these batteries can be importing power and storing it and that can help to alleviate constraints and our modeling and our processes has helped to reflect that so essentially what that's done is it's helped to accelerate the ability for batteries to connect to the system because they don't have the same operability issues from some other forms of technology such as baseline generation so i think it's been very much a piece of work where we've looked at these forms of technology connecting to the system we've got the intelligence around actually now how they behave and our process and the policies have, have have enabled us to make a real step change into that, which is obviously going to be a huge positive thing as we step through net zero with the volume of batteries that are going to be required across the system. So I was reading uh, at the beginning of the month, I think you, you put out a press release saying, you know, there's 19 projects representing around 10 gigawatts that can now be offered kind of dates much, much earlier than was originally uh, planned due to some sort of new approaches that you're taking. Could you maybe walk us through those and, and how those changes over the past couple of years are, are affecting, I guess, was how people even deploy storage right down to when, when they're plugging in and everything? Yeah, so it, it, it's essentially to so that kind of policy shift I've just mentioned. So historically, when a battery would look to connect to the system, you would you would have historically treated it as, as a conventional form of generation. So by that, when you kind of model it, um, it would have meant it might have been 
waiting for the upgrades to overhead lines on the system and also like the substation part. The new approach essentially means that um, batteries are not waiting for overhead lines because actually they're helping to manage the constraints on those overhead lines. So the acceleration that we've seen, those 19 projects to 10 gigawatts of capacity that come forward, essentially they're only waiting for the works to be done for their physical substation, their physical connection point to be achieved. Once that's done, they can get onto the system. As long as they're behaving in a way that we expect within the market, they're free to use the system as you would expect. And obviously consumers then get the benefit for the management of constraints going forward. So that's been a really positive shift forward. And what it's helped to do is provide better opportunities and confidence, particularly within the investor community uh, for those projects delivering batteries. I think this harkens back to something that, that Marek Kubik of, of then Affluence said in, in our first episode, and this idea that batteries are kind of almost a substitute for for conventional grid infrastructure in in places i mean is that a fair assessment you think is that how you're increasingly seeing them it's it's definitely one of the tools in the box so i I think the right answer here is that we want to make sure that whatever option is deployed to provide more capacity on the system it's the right thing for consumers that's front and center of the decision making and kind of what lends us to the overall option um, that we go for. There is undoubtedly a range of different tools that you put into that. Some of it, in some cases, you have to build more network and that will mean more assets. But there are market solutions that can be brought forward, like we've seen National Grid ESO do in terms of new frequency response products and the likes of dynamic containment, etc. And then on top of that, you're able to utilize the benefits you see from some of these other technologies connecting like batteries, which also help you to manage the timeframes when you need that additional capacity. So it's a tool in the box and it's something that obviously helps us to inform the right investment decision. And presumably, Joe, as well, you would hope to certainly be classed as uh, one of the other tools in the box in terms of the consumer side of this, right? Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, as well as from our point of view, if a customer would like to buy a battery and put that alongside their, their solar panels, um, then they can benefit from that economically. But we've known for many years, and we've been going for about 10 years now, that if you control the battery in the right way, um, you will reduce the impact on the network. We've seen that. Uh, we did a project with UK Power Networks in 2016. And, and what we found was that we reduced peak demand because we were taking energy from solar panels during the day and then releasing that energy in, at the peak of the evening. But then also we have got constraints in the distribution network caused by too much solar in the middle of the day. We are starting sometimes to see, you know, maybe not the same sorts of challenges that large scale grid developers have, but people not being able to connect the renewables that they really want to connect in the distribution network and finding that actually if you add a battery to that it can reduce the impact of that um you know that renewable deployment and it's all it's all about really getting the right kind of um uh, technology smart technology that can help to make sure that that battery is doing the right thing so that it can help the the network as well as providing the service to the consumer joe quick question on that how, how do you imagine you know uh, thirty thousand um, power volt batteries you know in in, in homes around the country how do, how do you aggregate or what's the mechanism for aggregating that potential to um reduce um, pressure on the network and how does that and by aggregate, I mean, how do, how do you sort of, uh, how do you monetize that amount and then share it with those individuals that are providing that? How, how does that work in practice? So from a technical point of view, we have a cloud-based system that communicates all the batteries and we can see exactly what all the battery systems are doing. and We can control those batteries centrally. And the question is, what should we tell those batteries to do? And how can the customer benefit from what we tell them to do? Now, at the moment, there are quite a lot of uh, time of use tariffs coming onto the market. Uh, most of those are relatively simple today, maybe two or three different prices throughout the day, but also some have got more prices. So we can use our uh, artificial intelligence to work out the best time to charge and discharge, 
and then send that signal to the battery. And the customer will fundamentally, through the supplier hub model, will be benefiting through a change to how much money they pay for, through uh, the, the measurement of their smart meter. Additionally to that, we would like to be able to monetize those batteries better than we can. The fact is, you know, if you go back five years, we did not have any half-hourly settlement at all in um, in domestic customers. We're starting to see half-hourly settlement. We have a lot of smart meters deployed. You know, we find it sometimes frustrating because we know that our battery is a very flexible asset. And if you're behind the meter, it's quite difficult to actually monetize that. And a lot of businesses and homes are not currently able to really um, be rewarded for the benefit their battery could provide if they were able to get access to the right price signal, so for example, a signal that says you know, electricity prices are high because there's a high demand uh, for electricity, and then be rewarded for reducing that pressure on the network. That being said, we've done a lot of trials over the last uh, few years. Um, uh, we've looked at working with um, DNOs. Often that's very, very localized. It's quite difficult to find enough batteries in the same area to really uh, provide a meaningful service for that DNO. But hopefully as the number of batteries increases, that will become easier. And then systems like, for example, demand flexibility service through National Grid, um, where customers who are able to benefit from DFS through their electricity supplier or through another party, we, we can um, take the fact they're on DFS and we can optimize the battery for that and then provide some hopefully useful service for National Grid to manage the network uh, while also allowing the customer to benefit from that. We're going to take a quick pause there and then we're going to be back to talk about some of the bottlenecks in the grid and how we might go about resolving them. To uncover the full story behind the numbers, you need analytics, but more than that, you want people who will harness their experience, intelligence and insight to interpret the raw data. BDO's UK Renewables practice works with investors and developers across a wide range of renewable technologies and from large corporates and funds to small community energy projects. The passion of our people and the breadth of our expertise enables us to understand the challenges faced by our renewables clients. We are partner-led, pragmatic and flexible in our approach, which is essential in such a dynamic and evolving sector. Our model audit team is ranked number one by both transaction volume and value on IJ Global, and we are proud of our track record in supporting many of the UK's listed renewables infrastructure funds, both with their fundraisings and their increasingly global M&A activity. Find out how we can help your company to succeed at bdo.co.uk and realize your business potential. BDO, more than a numbers machine. So John, we mentioned uh, fixing some of the queue as it was and bringing some of these uh, big impact projects forward. I think it is fair to say that the grid as itself is, is still constrained on the amount of projects that are looking to connect. There is a, a big queue for projects, no matter whether it's battery, wind, solar, everything. You know, how are you, how are you managing that? And is there still this kind of oversubscription that we're seeing? Is there more more demand for grid connections than available? Yes, I mean, so, so today there is a level of oversubscription that's been managed, but there are like firm plans in place in terms of how, how we're going to tackle it. So maybe if I just talk first and foremost about why there's a level of oversubscription, and then I'll come on to talk about actually what are some of the really big actions that have been taken forward, which are going to help to kind of improve the situation. So first and foremost, um, what we kind of find within the UK is if it's a fairly unconstrained market and there's very kind of low barriers to entry. So essentially, a, you know, if you've got your own registered company and and some and some small sort of money available to apply for a connection, then you can go through the process and do that. And we've obviously seen that there's a huge value in 
terms of having a grid connection that's meant that demand for grid connections has been so high. We've also then seen that you know, when contracts are signed, there are quite loose contractual obligations and it's then really, really difficult to, to move the projects out of the way that have stalled for whatever reasons to then move more viable ones come forward. And then the third part of it is that for, for many years, we've been operating what we call a first come, first serve process. So the order that those projects come into the process is the order that they get prioritized. And that doesn't materialize actually into the priority that the projects look to connect to the system because some have challenges with planning, others just fly through the process uh, for whatever reason. So it creates a little bit disjoint in terms of what the order looks like. So today, like as we've already talked about, there is around sort of three, over 300 gigawatts in the background. Probably that number will grow to around 450 by spring 2024 with with what we can see coming through the process. And that's against the backdrop of really needing an additional sort of 55 gigawatts to enable the ambitious sort of targets around sort of net zero out to 2035. So that kind of just frames the level of oversubscription that's going on. However, there are kind of um, big actions underway, which uh, is really going to shift the dial in terms of uh, actually trying to accelerate projects forward. Like the first of these has just been the recent decision that uh, Ofgem have made on queue management. Why that's really, really important is for the first time ever, it's enabled the right contractual teeth, if you like, to with National Grid ESO. So where projects are not moving forward in line with their program for whatever reason, the ESO going forward will have the ability to either move projects back or terminate projects depending on the exact nature of what's going on. Why is that important? Well, it's important because it will then enable big gaps to be created in the background to move real projects to go into. And then the other types of big actions that are going on is that we've already talked about the fact that we're studying batteries very differently. So that in essentially creates capacity on overhead lines because we're no longer managing or modeling the impact of batteries being associated with overhead lines. So that, that frees up a bit of capacity. And essentially the third big action around this has been that we've worked with the ENA and the DNOs to look at different types of technical limits that can be applied between distribution and transmission. So this year, we've been able to relook at the policy that exists between the, the, the point of connection of distribution and transmission, and that's created an additional 30 gigawatts of capacity that can be provided to the DNOs for their customers to be able to accelerate them forward. And these are projects today which uh, are stuck behind um, constraints at a transmission level. So it enables them to have earlier connection dates and connect ahead of that. So there, there is a number of actions going on on the way that would change the dial. Some of them will take some time to come to fruition. The one I talked about in terms of queue management, huge step forward, but it will take two to three years, essentially, probably to get a volume of capacity, which is um, which allows like a huge a number of projects to come forward and take that opportunity. I mean, it's worth saying that obviously these are kind of processes that you, you're managing. There's also a whole host of regulatory, big kind of <laughs> macro level policy changes that we've dipped into briefly on the podcast. But, you know, we have things like REMA, the consultation from last year and the, the move to our potential move towards locational pricing. I mean, I wanted to ask you, where, where are we on that journey? And I appreciate there's some sensitivities around what National Grid can and can't kind of take a view on, but at least in terms of finding our way through those changes and, and what they mean for the future, how, how far along that process are we? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if we start first and foremost with Riemann, and we'll probably talk about locational marginal pricing. I mean, uh, from a national grid point of view, we've been working very closely with, you know, the governance review on electricity market arrangements. We very much kind of welcome that in terms of reshaping the electricity industry 
And the fact that, you know, just the investment and innovation that's required going forward for net zero is a different type of question that we've had before. So very much kind of welcomed. And I think across the industry, a lot of people that I speak to feel that there is a need for change in that area. We also, however, recognize that the review needs to be done holistically. It needs to take into account all parts of the energy market across, you know, wholesale, retail, the capacity, and also balancing. We need to make sure that we maximize the benefits and reduce costs and improve resilience, taking that holistic view in mind. Um, Obviously, it's the electric energy industry can be quite complex and we need to manage like the consequences of decision between different markets to make sure that they're ultimately the right outcome for consumers. So from a REMA perspective, you know, we support the work that's going on, particularly with that and, and what needs to be established and put in place so that we can have a huge amount of confidence in our ability to be able to do what we need to do to achieve 2035 targets. The one sort of caveat around that is probably locational marginal pricing or LMP, where there are concerns, and I think not only just concerns within National Grid on this, but concerns from other stakeholders within the industry, probably about the the weight of discussions at this minute in time. Um, at this minute in time, we're probably not convinced that the benefit case at this stage stacks up. Um, obviously, assumptions are really, really key here. Um, to kind of provide a clear answer of what comes out. The, the, the big thing that is so important here is it is such a big decision and such a big um, change to sort of policy that it could risk undermining investment, which is required, particularly at this stage of um, the net zero journey. And I think it's really, really difficult, you know, if you're a customer looking to connect into our network, how you can model the implications of LMP in terms of your decision making and sort of financial diligence, if you like, with that going on in the background. So, you know, we welcome the fact that there is clear dialogue going on around it, but I think it needs to be managed against the backdrop of actually how it could impact sort of investment, not only like locally within the connections we need to make it within England and Wales, but from a kind of broader GB PLC perspective in terms of obviously an investment we're looking to drive from all forms of global energy companies looking at our market. I mean, Joe, are you seeing uh, these types of changes have an impact on, on your business or are there more that you'd like to see? I mean, you mentioned earlier kind of the ability of, of your batteries to be able to play into this market more. Do you see the changes coming that, that you would hope to see? Certainly things have moved in the right direction, I think, over the last few years. But there are a number of areas. Obviously, the regulations for behind the meter battery storage um, are, are, are very different, but there are still perhaps parallel challenges. So on the one hand, we do really think uh, that we need to implement, probably implement market-wide um, half-hourly settlement and, and really start to get those half-hourly settled tariffs and then get access to the price signals that we think um, could be beneficial um, to the network as, as obviously as well to the consumer. We've also got a, a strange situation in the, in the battery sector. We currently have a situation where if you invest in um, uh, a battery um, you pay 20% VAT on that battery if you retrofitted it. And we've been campaigning for um, the VAT to be reduced. And, and the reason for that is that electricity is currently at a lower rate of VAT. So effectively, what you're saying is if you invest in an asset to, um, uh, you know, to help yourself, to help the grid, um, then you're effectively going to be taxed at a higher rate than you would if you just carried on consuming uh, fossil fuel-derived energy. And uh, it's certainly something that we've been excised about over the last two or three years. And there are some signals that's about to change. So I'm really looking forward and hoping um, that uh, that we will get that um, VAT reduction um, in the future. 
Uh, finally, I think the other thing that uh, perhaps at a smaller scale that we sometimes have issues with, but we do work um, hand in hand with the ENA and, and the DNOs on it, is being able to connect batteries. And certainly it's very heartening to hear what's been going on at the sort of uh, super grid level. You know, our, our perspective is and always has been that the battery can help the network. And yet it is perhaps been seen a little bit too much like an enemy and um and we're starting we started to see that the rules changing to permit um larger amounts of battery storage to be connected with with what is arguably a slightly more pragmatic approach recognizes that really the, the battery is in almost all cases going to reduce impact on the dno um and it's not like just connecting a solar panel or a wind turbine where it's going to put more pressure on so i think in those those three areas are the sort of areas uh, that um you know we've been exercised about on on the regulation side of things i mean david are you seeing that uncertainty that, that john would be pointing to or the, or the potential of it kind of impact how people are thinking about their projects in in your line of work or, or certainly the investment front to be honest I, I, it's not not directly um it's not been part of the conversations i've been having um my, i mean my my kind of slightly probably oversimplistic view on, on these kinds of issues around local pricing and and, and actually more importantly transparency of pricing I tend to think that the more transparent you can be about the true cost of something, the more likely you're going to be to encourage some of the behavioural change that you know, net zero is going to require in, um, in in the UK and around the world. I appreciate, though, that there are lots of political and other considerations around around those issues. Um, but but generally speaking, I think if you know if you take take me and my behaviour. If I was if I was fully exposed to the recent price increases, within the you know caps weren't or um, subsidies effectively weren't directly applied to me, I'd I'd probably be thinking more seriously about the way I behave and the way I maybe consider putting a battery in my you know, house. Now that's me. Um, my circumstances are different to everyone else's, but with transparency of pricing, at least you get some clarity on the real cost of energy. That's my general view, but no, but no I, I, don't, I don't see it discussed. Um, I don't hear it being discussed a huge amount in my world, but that's not to say those discussions aren't, aren't happening. Listening to David, I was just thinking um, that actually one of the things that, that's brought out of the woodwork, the energy crisis, is an in, more of an interest among businesses in investing in renewables and, um, and batteries behind the meter. Previously, electricity was too cheap for them to be interested. And uh, now they're very interested. And they're interested both about reducing their costs, but also hedging their costs and knowing what their costs are going to be for the next you know, five or 10 years, rather than suddenly having a, a three times increase in their electricity costs in a year. And um, they, weren't, they weren't benefiting from the cap. So they felt the full force of the um, electricity price increase. Absolutely. Yeah. On that front, then, I think one thing that we wanted to focus on was where the growth opportunity for batteries is now. I think one thing we were hearing in, in our last episode about kind of the future of where the sector is headed is that we have, you know, potentially are reaching some kind of tipping point where a lot of the volatility that was the early appeal for for batteries is maybe being priced out, or, or that's certainly a market uh, point of view. But there's a certain uh, amount of cannibalization that could happen in, in terms of the amount of batteries all competing for the same kinds of services and, and uh, the, the same points on the grid. I, I did wonder your your views on that and whether you think we'll see a smoothening of kind of these projects coming on. I think there's been a rush of these kind of sub 50 megawatt projects over the past few years. Um, I expect that to, to kind of condense into larger ones, but John, maybe you have a different view. No, I, th I think your assumption is probably right. I think, you know, from intelligence that we've got, we'll probably reasonably expect the size of the projects to get bigger. That's you know, one to do with the fact that the, the economies of scale and the costs that we've seen have come down. And therefore, from a financial perspective, it, it, it kind of makes sense to do it. But equally, I think, you know, at this stage, we have seen 
increasing levels of competition, particularly in sort of in the ancillary service markets. You know, the ESO has, National Good ESO has done some really good work in terms of rollout of new faster acting frequency products. And that's been really, really attractive for some of these earlier batteries coming in. And now we're seeing good competition in in those markets. But undoubtedly, batteries are going to provide much more operability benefits to the system than just for frequency services as well. And I think as we, you know, there's a relationship between the volume of renewables and the pace that the renewables are deployed on the system and the level of batteries we need. So longer duration type batteries, bigger batteries, I think we can expect to see all of those kind of business models coming through in the future. And to Joe's point, yeah, undoubtedly, like behind the meter and smaller scale type batteries are going to be really, really important as well. I'm glad you mentioned long duration. I was going to uh, casually uh, bring us onto that next. We've talked a lot about batteries, but it's also important that kind of the seasonal storage has been a running theme through uh, through the series as well. I did wonder, National Grids, you know, do you see more of these long duration type projects coming onto uh, your books? Are you having those conversations? Where where are we with kind of really reckoning with this seasonal long duration challenge that we have? Yeah, so it's it's certainly a topic of conversation that we're having with many customers. I would say this part of the process is bit too early to say they've been coming onto our books but in terms of overall portfolios of projects that big organizations are looking to take forward it's certainly something that seems like it's um gaining more momentum and it's becoming more important from our perspective obviously we um we really want to make sure that this, the system is fit for purpose for whatever needs to connect. So we, we we probably do envisage that there will be these types of projects coming on exactly where they'll be coming on and the time frame. Still a bit unclear at this minute in time. However, expectation, I think, is kind of momentum is going to ramp up more, I think, particularly with that form of technology. So I mean, we already have... Um pumped hydro assets on the grid but i think there is a call at the moment from, from certainly from that sector to do a, a bit more of a kind of cap and floor price support mechanism for them to be able to kind of enter this a little bit more we also have things like liquid air storage compressed air storage we mentioned hydrogen you know do you see any of these posing more challenges or different challenges to to battery assets or to other kinds of technologies that we've seen before i don't see them posing more challenge there could be different types of challenge i mean you know from our perspective we need to build the capacity in the system in the right places to enable the needs of those projects to come forward um in certain areas that might mean that there isn't the level of infrastructure that we would like. And therefore, uh, we need to make sure that the kind of planning for some of these big strategic projects and the grid upgrades and uh, what is required is, is is aligned with that to make sure that the capacity in the system can be done. But, you know, the e- National Grid ESO has done a, done a good job over the last couple of years, particularly from an operability point of view in terms of making sure that there's the right level of assets on the system to cater for different operability needs. So I think that process will continue with those types of technologies in mind. Obviously, we need to make sure that, as I've said, the physical build of the network is fit for purpose because some of those projects that you've just talked about, they could be quite regionally specific and in, 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 in areas where certain upgrades are required and obviously that process might need to start now i mean joe do you see anything at the smaller scale that is kind of attempting to deal with the the longer duration challenge i appreciate you're kind of more on the battery side of things but you know do you see anything disrupting that uh from from the conversations that you're having i mean i think the uh the long duration energy storage is one of those holy grails that's been in the background for as long as i've been in 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 the sector and clearly something really important with um renewables that maybe 
um, generate a huge amount of energy and then don't generate at all for a number of weeks. Uh, the only thing that um, uh, crosses my mind that you haven't mentioned is perhaps thermal storage and um, and, and potentially the opportunity to store um, energy thermally and or even potentially interseasonally, uh, although it's not something I'm very familiar with. It does seem to me that there could be an opportunity to, uh, to store more heat um, in various forms. Um, for perhaps longer periods of time than than what we're doing at the moment. Yeah, I think that certainly an episode that uh, we we could have fit in but but didn't have time is is one solely looking at heat and the challenges of heat and and the idea of heat as a storage vector. I mean, I think heat networks are, are becoming more of a thing. I think there's one being built up the road for me uh, now. But certainly, this kind of back to basics approach of of energy storage is it's not just raw electrons, right? It can be other sort of services that can be provided. Uh, and I think increasingly in the, in the sort of the coverage that I'm seeing, that's that's beginning to creep into a bit more st- strategic views on things. I mean, I think it sort of ties into a wider point, which is that as we go towards net zero, we, we're going to have an energy revolution, really. We're going to be using energy in different ways. We're going to be powering our vehicles and our heating our homes and, and doing all sorts of different things with electricity we weren't doing before, generating electricity in different ways. And in terms of the way that we um, manage our electricity usage, um, we need to do that in a smart way, um, and we need to look at everything holistically. Look at the heat that we're using, as well as the the electricity that we're using. I'm going to move us on briefly to technology. So we haven't seen anything kind of, I think, upsetting the apple cart of of uh, batteries, certainly in terms of big uh, new kind of chemistries or anything. But it's, it seems to be that uh, chemistry choices are emerging, which are kind of moving away from some of the more uh, difficult to get uh, metals or ingredients. I mean, are you are you seeing that? Are you seeing a bit of a consolidation towards certain kinds of chemistries, Joe? I mean, certainly we've been um, technology agnostic um, for as long as PowerVolt's been going. We've looked at all sorts of different things over the years, and um, but but mostly at the moment using um, LFP. And um, you know, we're, we are starting to see uh, people talking about sodium, uh, zinc, other elements. E- each of these different classes of chemistry has got pros and cons. Uh, size constraints, weight constraints, uh, resilience, um, either benefits or, or issues. One thing when I heard your, your your question about the technology is also to not just look at the chemistry, but think about how you manage the battery, how you optimize it, when it charges, discharges, how you get the best efficiency out of it. That's certainly something that we've been been really looking at because once you've got that base chemistry, it's like what you do with that battery and how you optimize it and how you make the best use of it. Um, using smart technology is, is really important and um, potentially more important than the actual, actual chemistry itself. On that sustainability front, and I suppose access to raw materials, I mean, John, <laughs> I dread to think what, what National Grid has to think about in terms of pr- procurement and you know the amount of supply, <laughs> supply chain and services you have to deal with. I mean, is, is that a challenge at the moment? And maybe less so with just storage directly, but more kind of as you look across the whole grid, we've a lot of supply chain issues in other areas. Is is that something that you're dealing with right now? Yeah, it's it's un- undoubtedly a challenge, not just for National Grid, but many other sort of power operators across the globe. What we kind of what we've obviously been seeing is a huge amount of demand in that space that's uh, been inflate, inflating prices. Coupled with that, the capacity in the supply chain is obviously getting squeezed, so lead times are going out further. However, there's plans in place to kind of combat that. So we've worked really closely with Ofgem on an ASTI framework. So it's around accelerating strategic uh, transmission infrastructure. What that enables us to do is have more confidence from a funding point of view. So we've been able to put new models in place for this supply chain, very much working in partnership with them, going to market early. 
So it enables us to have the right capacity to enable the needs to be met. The important thing, though, going forward is that we need to be able to make sure that we've got a sustainable uh, energy policy going forward, building on it, obviously, what we have with net zero to make sure that, that we can grow the supply chain. And um, clearly, there's more that needs to be done going forward. Like we're, we're still ramping up and we need to make sure from an industry perspective, it's fit for purpose. So it's no it's no good any one party having what they need. Obviously, we need to come together and collectively have what we need to kind of deliver for for projects and consumers alike. So yeah, lots going on in that space. And it is it is currently today like yeah, a really big hot topic within the industry. Joe, I mean, are you seeing the same thing at, at the smaller scale as well? And does that have an impact on how consumers uh you know obviously it has an impact on prices, but does it have an impact again on how they think about adopting these technologies with with prices going up? Well, certainly, um, especially out, out of the back the back end of the pandemic, we had um real supply chain disruption. And uh I think like a lot of companies, uh, we've actually planned really carefully and have not been too heavily impacted by the various issues that have have affected the supply of all sorts of things over the last few years. Um uh, I think I think clearly businesses need to spend time um, and, and effort and, and unfortunately um, capital um, making sure they've got um, access to good supply chains, given uh, sometimes the difficulty of getting hold of those electronic components. So it might not just be about the battery, about the battery chemistry, but it might be there, it might be a chip or a um, semiconductor or some other component that becomes uh, in short supply. So, uh, so yeah, we do need to think carefully about um, that, that supply chain to make sure that we can uh, deliver products to consumers. So one other thing we, we did want to touch on, we have touched on a little bit so far, is kind of just the investment landscape and the investment appetite for battery storage since we started. David, I mean, have you seen that change as much as we've seen these kind of big changes across the landscape? Yeah, as I said earlier, I, th- I think there's there's been some pretty fundamental shifts. Um, there's definitely appetite amongst sort of professional investors in in um, in battery storage at lots of different levels. Um, as I said before, they're get, they're getting bigger. They're, they're doing bigger projects. There, there's kind of globalization, um, just as there was with you know, conventional renewables generation. There's, there's been globalization of, of M and A activity and investment activity around storage. I think there's also another interesting change that we've we've seen over the. Um, last couple of years, really, in the UK in particular, we've we've got a well-established uh, renewables generation asset base now, and as a result and as a consequence, we're seeing more and more businesses developing in in terms of services to those um, those assets, and that's creating more investment opportunity. And different types of investors are becoming interested in in energy transition because of the, they're not just infrastructure assets anymore. There are people businesses, um, tech businesses, etc. There's a whole range of businesses that are plugged into this um, wider energy energy transition. Um, and some good examples of that actually are home installations. We're seeing lots of activity in that sector at the moment. We all know that you know the home, the small office, et cetera, um, with heating and electricity, um, ch- habits changing and, and requirements changing as a result of net zero. Um, there's, a, there's a huge nationwide infrastructure project um, that's going to take 20, 30 or more years to, to take out old equipment and put in new equipment for heating and for storing electricity and using it differently etc so um that's going to require a huge work- workforce um some of this technology heat pumps and and batteries are are not straightforward bits of technology to design and install okay they 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 require lots of expertise um and their use needs um you know people need to be educated and behaviors need to change so this, to me there's a huge opportunity in that area and we are starting to see deals happening involving 
you know, uh, installer businesses that have got capability to design systems. Um, some may specialize in certain types of technology, but many of them are capable of providing a, f- a full solution across storage energy generation and heating. So that is becoming um, quite a hot topic, both for us and for, for, for the sector. Um, so that's at a sort of, I guess, the, uh, the, the smaller scale. But I say at the big end, there's been a huge amount of interest in um, an investment in uh, larger scale projects. Joe, is PowerVault one of the companies helping to ride that wave as well? Oh, I definitely think so. And uh, we've been going for about 10 years and have uh, closed a fundraising round in, in January this year of around £3.8 million. So definitely been invested in. And I think really because investors can see the opportunity for electricity storage, we know that we're going to need more electricity to be generated. It's going to be generated by renewable assets. So the obvious missing piece of the puzzle is how do you store that energy for when you need it? So there's definitely an opportunity there. In terms of our market in the sort of uh, behind the meter homes, small businesses, there's a huge potential for an untapped potential for installing these technologies. I think one of the interesting things David touched upon is you know, some of the sort of um, side issues, access to the right skills, to the people who are going to be needed to, to install all of these technologies are clearly important. Um, but I think it's a, a really big opportunity for the UK. You know, we, we can create jobs, new green jobs um, in this new sector that's emerging. And then hopefully, if, if we have a good market, a good vibrant market in the UK, which is why it's so important to get these things like market-wide half-hourly settlements and, and get the, the tax regime right, we could have a vibrant market where businesses like us can thrive, generate tax incomes, uh, and ultimately exports. But we have to have a good home market um, to be able to do that, um, and a market that rewards flexibility of all kinds. And, and then we will have a thriving sector of, uh, of small technology businesses, medium-sized technology businesses, creating world-class technologies. I mean, we've spoken with the likes of Zenobi, who are kind of both batteries and uh, mobility business. I did wonder whether, you know, those are those are increasingly uh, intersecting and maybe even butting up against each other at points. Do you see kind of the improvements in in vehicle to grid and, and EV batteries as a, a threat or a complement to, to businesses like Paravol? Well, I've always thought it was a complementary uh, technology, electric vehicles and, and, and batteries. And clearly what's good for batteries is good for vehicle to grid, is good for other flexibility technologies. We're going to need so much flexibility, I think, and so many different assets, ways, clever ways of managing these assets. The transformation, the journey we're on is a huge one. You know, we're going to be doubling or tripling the amount of energy consumption, uh, increasing the amount of renewable generation that generates energy at times when we don't necessarily need it. The opportunity to me seems really huge. So I, I tend not to think too much about uh, thinking that one technology is going to completely dominate the whole space. I think we're going to need a whole range of different technologies. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a great supporter of anything um, that can help all of us to succeed um, uh, in, in the sort of flexibility space. John, I mean, how does National Grid begin to kind of get its head around mobility and, and the re- reflex back into the power market if, if these large assets even you know buses and things like that are, are either needing to charge or discharge is there a way that you can kind of model that and how does that go into your thinking yeah i mean th- there's a huge amount of work going on in that area already i think you know historically people have been the industry has been really worried about the volume of like EVs that can charge at one time and what that makes. I, I, I think in this case, there's always a portfolio approach in terms of the right infrastructure being required, but also the right mechanisms in the market to make sure that the, it can be done in such a way that it, it works with the infrastructure and it works with power prices and such like. So there's undoubtedly you know a world that we're going into, which means that we're more interlinked and the data 
and things like AI that will need to kind of support that are obviously going to be really, really key. So it's not, it's no longer just about energy companies and making decisions. It's also about what other information exists with other sectors and how we can bring those things together as well. So, I mean, that is the challenge. Um, but ultimately, the challenge is there to make sure that we can we can all drive the right value for consumers out of everything that's been made. But, um, you know, we've recently done some great work in terms of connecting up a pro- project that's going to provide power for like uh, electric buses and such like in one of the big cities. So some of that work's already going on. And like I say, once we can understand how it works within the market and its profile, then you can you work with that and you can adapt your policies and approach like we've done for batteries, for instance. And one thing that's kind of come out over our discussions has, has been this idea that the prosumer and the idea that kind of we'll all be taking, you know, much firmer charge with the help of a lot of, I think, smart tools. But firmer charge of our energy use and kind of be selling it back and, <laughs> and uh, getting it at different times and this this whole smart system that will support us. I mean, Joe, I appreciate you're, you're maybe biased in this, but do you see, you know, the rise of the prosumer and, and do you think that are we all going to be prosumers in the next kind of decade? I mean, I think there's sort of two sides to this. So on the one hand, we know there's a huge untapped potential for behind the meter sites to have renewable energy and storage assets and other flexibility assets. We know that we've been in you know, an early adopter market up to around now. I think the thing is, though, most people don't really want to spend all their time thinking about when their solar panels charging their battery and when their car's coming. They just want it to work. And um, one of the things that we've really tried to do is make the technology really simple and take all those people. There are some people who really do want to look at every half hour and work out exactly what the profile is going to be. Not very many, though. I think I know some of them. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've got a system that can do that automatically. So I think people will naturally be producers and consumers, but I think they would like to not think too much about it and just get local electricity that's clean, you know, that's uh, got a stable price um, uh, so that they can have, uh, you know, the heating they want their electric vehicle to be charged, watch the television in the evening and not think too much about um, battery storage. I think that aligns you very much with the priorities of National Grid, if I'm not putting words in John's mind. Yeah, so we, I mean, we obviously have some big priorities over the next couple of years. I mean, the one that undoubtedly sits the kind of ambition about this is enabling the green energy transition across Britain. Uh, and the infrastructure is required to obviously kind of support that. I think, you know, closer to home, what that really means is how we can provide really good thought leadership in the connections and the reform that's required. And we've been working really closely with industry, government and Ofgem, obviously, to make that happen. It was only last week the Connection Action Plan was that was released in terms of some of like the big actions that can look to connect projects at a quicker pace to the network going forward. What I would also say within National Grid is that our kind of um, end goal is to make sure that we've got a connection-ready network and we can anticipate the needs of what projects are looking forward. So some of the things that we are also doing in this space is more on the technical side, like how we can design and deliver our substations in the future so that they have better flexibility and agility for customers. And it doesn't matter from a customer point of view. They don't need to understand what side of substation they come into. They just need to know they're at that substation. And there's a much more simplistic way in terms of how we've designed it that we can move customers around. So big part of that is, yeah, simplicity in design, taking some of the complexity away from what exists with customers today and ultimately making sure that we're working really closely with Ofgem in terms of our next price control, so our next funding um, window with Ofgem to make sure that we've we've got the right evidence and the right need case to support the deployment of 
the infrastructure that's required for the network, which, as we talked about, is just one component part of the tools required to successfully get these projects connected and operational within the market. So lots to do, but certainly a super exciting time to be in the industry and to be trying to champion this kind of once in a lifetime change that we're all on. Absolutely. I think everyone here would certainly agree with that. I'm, I'm going to draw us to a close just there, but I, I did want to ask you both uh, very quickly at the end, you know, what is the next step for, for storage? Uh, in the UK, what, what what are the things to look out for in 2024? What, uh, most important things in your kind of calendar or on your horizon? Uh, Joe first, maybe. Smart battery control. I think uh, a lot of, of consumers in the past have been fitting um, a battery that's basically just for solar arbitrage, but really looking for more intelligent battery control um, uh, becoming more mainstream. Great. And to you, John? Yeah, so I think it's really just continuing on the journey of trying to get some of the big battery projects that we've currently got on our workbook connected to systems of 20 2024 is a big year in terms of providing confidence to the battery investment community of that. And we also kind of see, obviously, I've talked about hybrid projects as well. So we're starting to see some of those projects coming forward as well. So I think 2024 looks like the year of delivering and getting some big projects connected to network learning from them and that will helpfully give us all the richness of information we need to to model our kind of and change our approach as we go forward. That's great to hear. So that brings us to the end of our 10 episode series, David. I mean, it's been an incredible uh, learning exercise for me, certainly, and I hope for you. I think there's a couple of things that I've learned over that period. I think the biggest one that, that stands out to me at the moment is just that we are, you know, months away from being, having to be at this zero carbon capable grid, something that uh, Barney mentioned, I think, in our, in our sixth episode. You know, we are, should be at a, a grid that can run only on renewables for brief lengths of time by 2025. You know, we're talking maximum two years away. I think the scale of that challenge, but also what that means for the UK is, is terrifying and exciting. Um, I don't know whether you've picked out anything else that you've kind of brought out over the series as well. So I've got, yeah, I've got quite a long list. I'll try and answer it quickly. But, <laughs> but yeah, your, your observation is quite right. And I, what I do remember Barney saying, though, was that, that the test is that, you know, for, for a, a brief moment, we're 100% low carbon. I think that was the, the test. So I think you said we're getting close, sort of 80%, 85%. So, uh, you know, let's, let's be positive and think that's, uh, you know, eminently achievable. But in terms of what I've taken from the the series, well, yeah, learnt loads, um, met and and checked in with, uh, met some new people and checked in with some people I hadn't seen for a long time, which is great. I, I mean, there are a few things in terms of specifics. It's firstly, it's such a complicated area storage, isn't it? It's it's fascinating. It's these assets are a bit more challenging to manage and control compared to solar farms and wind farms. Um, you know, you have to decide what to do with them every split second of every day. So they're fascinating. Um, I talked about the growth earlier, which has been just stellar, I think, over the last three, four, five years. Uh, almost unbelievable. Um, the UK is just, you know, we're leading the way, really. I mean, you know, look, look at um, how well we've done in this area and let's hope we can, like we did with solar development, you know, let's hope we can export that around the world. I think, yeah, we've we've heard there are other markets developing but and obviously we, we have had a UK focus and I think there's some kind of standouts to places like Australia and I think to a certain extent North America is kind of coming on board but it does really feel like the UK is, is taking a leap here that a lot of other places uh, are, you know, one step behind. And, and that's exciting and challenging at the same time, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, really is. I, th I think um, what I'd like to see is some kind of movement around, um, we talked about long long duration storage, you know, pumped hydro in particular, um, but other technologies. And we've we've heard on the, on the series about some of those technologies. I think it would be, I think one of the challenges with them is that 
particularly the large pumped hydro projects, is the, the capex required is so enormous that it's it's difficult to see um, without the right mechanisms and incentives. It's difficult to see private money coming into those. Um, I mean, I know there are there are some. I mean, there's a small number of projects you know under development, but it'd be good to see some some kind of signalling that allows those to um, um, to, to progress at a, a more rapid um, pace. I think the other things that are really fascinating is what what's going to be the impact of you know, decarbonizing heat. You know, we've done well on on the electricity generation front, but when it comes to heat, there's a whole world of uh, challenge ar- around the corner with with that, both in the home and outside the home, and how that impacts electricity generation patterns and usage patterns is going to be interesting to see how that all, all kind of uh, pans out. So there's just huge amounts of, in terms of the technical side of things around. Um, yeah, the utility scale, this this kind of uh, dynamic between those that think that energy trading sort of or, or rather wholesale trading um, and making a profit from sort of buying cheap, selling high through a battery, whether that will win out over all the other you know, numerous sort of ancillary services, whether that, you know, which is going to become the key revenue stream. Um, how's that going to play out? That's quite fascinating. I did have a note here around, yeah, that perhaps we might see some, some uh, consolidation in the next sort of three to five years as well. You know, you have a couple of listed firms in the market and a, and a couple of kind of solo operators that will presumably one day look to kind of come good on those investments, right? And I think we might see even, even bigger players emerge from some of these uh, big portfolios coming together into this kind of mid-market somewhere between generators and, <laughs> and other electricity users. You know, I, I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. No, I wouldn't, wouldn't bet against consolidation. Uh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, the, the pleasing thing though is that is the, you know the UK's position uh, in, in this, in particularly in battery storage. It's it's um, you know, it's really encouraging to see see what's been achieved. So well, for now that carries us to the end of this episode and the end of the series. Thanks to David for co-piloting and to John and Joe for joining us and indeed to all the guests and the companies who've joined us throughout our run. Thanks also to producers Caroline and Amber and thanks to you for listening. You can let us know your thoughts through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. Stay tuned for plenty more podcasts from Energy Voice Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts. I've been Andrew Dykes and thanks very much for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.